I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to have been asked to uh, host this event, of course, at this wonderful bookshop, um, which is a great place, um, which is a useful thing to observe, I think, at, at the outset, because we are going to be talking, by far from exclusively, but we are going to be talking about place and, and what it means and how it shapes who we are, where we come from, where we're heading for. We're all going to, also going to talk about the past. We're going to talk about all sorts of interweavings of forms of identity, identities, I think, deeper than names, which is going to be also an element that will come into the mix very, very shortly. It's a great pleasure, first of all, in light of perhaps of what I've just said and also what John has wonderfully summed up as well, to welcome Catherine to set the scene for us. Catherine, your book has already received much acclaim and, and wide coverage, taking on a number of the different slants and, and uh, elements that the book contains. I wonder if you could set the scene for us as to where it came from. Because it wasn't a given that this book would come into the world by any means, was it? Uh, no. I mean, it began in a rather haphazard manner. Uh, initially, I had, it began with a summer holiday. Um, the holiday was tinged uh, with a poignancy because I'd been pregnant the previous winter and I had miscarried in the spring. And so when the summer came, I knew that I should have been holding a baby. And I felt this lack, this absence. Uh, now, at the time, we were living in Barcelona, where there are extraordinarily long school holidays. They start on the 21st of June, they go uh, to about the 16th of September. So given that I came back to our uh, holiday cottage in, in Wales for three months with my daughter. We were quite alone on a beach uh, for a good, getting on for a month before anybody else turned up. Uh, so I felt this need to, in the first instance to come up with the project. Now I'd read a book, a wonderful book by the Scottish writer Neil Gunn uh, called Highland River, which tells the story of a young man called Ken who's 30, he's a research scientist and he has this desire to return to his hometown where he's grown up uh, in Caithness uh, where, uh, on, a, on a river mouth in a little harbour town, a herring fishery. And he realises that he has never once followed his river from the sea to its source. So he decides at the age of 30 to go back and to walk upstream uh, to the source of the river and the source of himself. Uh, and I was absolutely fascinated by this beautiful book. Now, you all know what Britain looks like. Well, I mean, I was in the top left-hand corner of Wales. Caithness is sort of over here, diagonally opposed and I had a small child with me. So actually the practicalities of getting to Caithness, it just seemed to get further and further and further away. So for the most part, uh, we were on a beach in Wales, not following a river from the sea to the source. But the Flint Peninsula is full of lots of little short rivers. It's a tiny peninsula, some of them only a few miles long. And so we decided that we'd start closer to home. 
still with no idea really of writing about it at that point. Again, not as easy as it sounds. Anywhere in England and Wales, if you try to follow a river, you will come across enclosures, you'll come across a field with a bull in it, you'll come across a golf course, somebody's garden. We have no right of way to walk along riverbanks. So in the end, I was sort of driven to Scotland, where, we ha- where there's a right to roam, and you can really do whatever you like, uh, provided you do it on foot. But at the end of this summer, I started writing an account of the journeys that we'd undertaken, uh, really at that point as a, as a gift for Evie. I, she, she was nine. It's quite a magical age. I mean, she, it's very famous five, very swallows and Amazons. We, you know, we built sandcastles. We caught crabs on lines. We, we caught mackerel. We made uh, mackerel pate and stargazy pie and all these things. That, and, I, and I was just aware that it was a very special moment in the life of uh, a child. And I only have one child. So I started initially writing an account of that summer. But already it was tempered by something. And part of the reason I was writing it, having never written anything before, was because I had this sense that something was passing, had already passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, it turned out that I had cancer. Uh, I didn't discover that for several more months. Mm-hmm. But when I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, what had been a sort of abstract meditation on origins and on the idea of what the sea is, what a river is, what walking back on yourself is, what a source is, in a quite sort of vague um, and philosophical way, metaphorical way, mm. uh, actually suddenly acquired this rather grim um, immediacy because, well, for <laughs> a start, there was a possibility that I might die. But then secondly, I had to try to find uh, a medical family history for my daughter. So suddenly what had been a very abstract search be- became a very concrete search. And once this happened, I couldn't really ignore it. So I just decided... I didn't want to revisit the book. I didn't want to sort of imbue it with uh, a sense of portent or an idea that something was going to happen, or hindsight. So actually, the book is structured in two parts. There's part one, which was my original, you know, what I've been talking about, and then I just carried on writing through it. And, and in a way, the second part sort of mirrors the first part, but in a concrete way, as opposed to the rather lyrical abstract mm-hmm. with which I had begun. Um, so it began as a journal that was meant to be a gift, uh, it very quickly began to take the form of a travelogue uh, with each chapter represented by a different place. And then it sort of evolved into a memoir. Uh, so it wasn't, in, you know, sometimes people have said to me, why did you decide mm. on this particular structure? I didn't decide on it. It just evolved uh, and grew quite I mean, intentionally. Um, I mean, that's an extremely, extremely helpful uh, introduction, if you like. But, I mean, the, the idea of a book and you as a writer was also itself a kind of... Uh, not a, by any means a given, was it? You were working as a... No, as it was a, a film, real shock. A film and script editor. <laughs> yeah. This need to write, the, the several uh, reasons that prompted the writing, you've been very clear about. But then what, what happened, it seems, in the kind of merging of these two books, if you like, is this idea that the search, the, the kind of topographic search, the quest and the journey along rivers then takes on another kind of metaphorical slant from its Mm. perhaps more metaphorical origins. It goes through this harsh reality of your cancer and then comes out the other side to become another kind of metaphor, doesn't it, for a larger search again once you piece together all these elements. Well, yes. Then I started thinking about, you know, what actually matters, what are the things that are important in Mm. life. And they can be... And, you know, I think I came to the conclusion that they're quite small and they're quite close at hand. Should we hear some? Because we'd love to Um, to have an extract and then we can weave that in with... Further conversation. Uh, well, one of the first places that I visited uh, was the banks of the River Mersey. 
And so I did, that summer I did go to the Mersey with my mother, with my adopted mother, Jean, and my daughter, Evie. And when I've arrived, I'm recalling the first time that I came to this place, uh, which was about three years earlier. I'd been working um, actually with the, the writer, Alan Bleasdale, on an adaptation of Oliver Twist. And, um, you know, it was exhausting. It had been a long meeting. It was hard. It was arduous. And I wanted to go for a walk on a beach. And I figured that, well, as Liverpool is a port, if I drive north, um, then eventually I'll come to one. So although I'd grown up in the northwest, I hadn't been back there really for many years at this point. And so I found myself on Crosby Beach. A few years ago, salmon were found in the Mersey for the first time in 200 years. Before they stopped coming, when the effluent pouring into the rivers made the water too dirty to sustain them, salmon were common. In The Water Babies, Charles Kingsley tells of a petition from the children in an English workhouse begging not to be fed salmon more than twice a week. In days gone by, this magnificent fish was considered food for the very poor. It still is. Alaskan tinned salmon even now cross the seas to Africa, complete with a book of recipes, the shelf life of a can, six years. In addition to being their breeding grounds, the high pools to which salmon make their way are also, for the most part, their graves. As the disintegrating bodies of the parent fish fragment and float back towards the sea, they sustain the tiny smolts. It is a curiously sacramental death, birth, dark there under the sea, the cool fresh easing towards them, the late spring floods bringing a scent, a peaty memory, diverting them from their diet of prawns. How do they know when to respond? What caused them? On that day, I'd had a sense. I'd felt a pull, a draw, as though something were listening. I'd felt it in the space around me. It was so strong that I turned in my tracks away from the shore and away from the Anthony Gormley metal men and walked back towards the land, Later, I wondered if the cleaning up of the Mersey had contributed to my feelings on that day. I wondered if I was able, finally, to perceive something that until then the dirty water and chemical spill had smothered, drowned, or perhaps the time just happened to be right, everything in alignment, a coincidence. So I'd walked towards the children's playground, the one that had so captivated Evie. There was an ice cream kiosk and two ladies waddled towards it along the same boardwalk path, a young girl between them in a green crocheted dress, a matching hat, her eyes wobbling behind thick lenses. Above and behind them, hundreds of knots whirred in their two-tone winter plumage. The knots vanished briefly, then reappeared with the slight tilt of a Venetian blind as their underbellies, which were the colour of the sky, made them momentarily invisible, although the air still crackled with their passing. Excuse me, I said, is there a hospital around here? There used to be, said one of the ladies, and pointed through a gap in the sea wall. It's just up there. It was a convent, they told me, and the sisters still lived there, but it wasn't a hospital anymore. Quite grand it had been, a sort of private nursing home. I see. Thank you. I followed their directions and came to the house. Inside the hallway was a brass plaque dedicated to the Sisters of Mercy, who have cared for the sick in this place for over 100 years. No longer a hospital, but a guest house with a reception, which was empty. There was a bell, which I chose not to ring. Behind the desk there was a door into the main house with a Yale lock, but it was on the latch. I eased inside. The house opened around me and grew larger, or perhaps I grew smaller in relation to it. There was a rectangular stained-glass window above the staircase. I felt certain that I knew it, that I'd seen it before. I found a chapel in what I took to be a baptismal font, although it could have been a holy water stoop. A grill divided the house from the nun's residence. 
and a few aged sisters sat in the pews, white as doves, tucked into prayer. An electric candle stand illuminated a painted metal relief of Our Lady, and I thought of school and physics, the simple circuits and fairy-like bulbs. Can we help you? As I turned and walked back into the hallway, I almost knocked over two of the sisters. Oh, yes, I'm sorry, there was no one in reception. The sisters waited. One of them was about my own age, while the other was ancient, the crown of her veiled head barely breaching the shoulder of the younger nun. I found myself thinking of a pepper pot. I was wondering if it might be possible that I was born here. The nuns seemed unfazed by the question. Yes, the younger one replied, it is. In fact, if you were born in a hospital in this part of Liverpool, then there was nowhere else. What's your name? We can look up your records, said the older nun. I'm sorry, they're not of the best. Actually, I was adopted as a child and my name has been changed, but I know the name on my birth certificate, Marie Therese, and I mentioned a surname. The two nuns lifted their arms in unison, white puppets acting surrender. Sister Marie Therese, they both said. I looked over my shoulder, thought perhaps someone was standing there. There was nobody. Sister Marie Therese, I asked. Yes, the older sister said, and turned to the younger woman next to her. Could Sister Marie Therese help me? I asked. Yes, said the older nun. Can I meet her? No, said the younger sister. She's died ten years ago. But we know who you are. And as we stood in the hallway, they told me the story, finishing one another's sentences, of the midwife who had been left quite literally holding the baby and of the mother who had fled the hospital. The younger sister seemed to be as familiar with the details as the older nun who had witnessed them. The midwife's name was Sister Marie Therese and she'd taken charge of me and looked after me and kept me until a home could be found for me. She baptised you and she gave you her name. Whether this was Sister Marie Therese's own name or one that she'd taken on entering the convent, I didn't think to ask. There was no time for me to register my feelings about the discovery and loss in under a minute of my namesake, the idea, the fact that I had one. Thank you very much. And I think that, that passage really kind of brings together or, or kind of illuminates many of the strands in the book, and, and I'd like to take those forward further into the conversation. Blake, in your own work, I mean, you are renowned as a memoirist and many other forms, as John said in his introduction, but poetry was a really early passion and an early publication uh, identity for you as well. It's about 30 years since you published your last collection. This is one gathered very much about a particular landscape around and inside and engaging with the stories of that coastline of Suffolk, itself an adopted landscape for you, and the idea of adoption, of course, both actual, bodily, if you like, and, and familially, and also topographically, we'll come back to, I think. But could you just, again, set the scene for us both in a literary sense as to how this collection emerged out of many other forms of writing that you've been engaged with, but also how Suffolk has kind of worked its way into you to, to again, to lead to almost a complete collection? Yeah. Thinking about um, Suffolk. Yeah, um, I I gave up poetry, or poetry gave up me for some time. I wrote memoirs. I ran out of members of the family to uh, put in books, and then I turned to fiction. Um, but the last, over the last six, seven years, I started writing poems again, and it's almost always been while I was in Suffolk, where I spent a lot of time, have been there, spending time there for the last 30 years, when I'm away from from London, where I live most of the time, and all the, all the stuff that weighs you down, I, I seem to have a bit of, of space, and, and it, um, I started writing poems again. The landscape, <clears throat> the coastal landscape, is, is a bit of a challenge for me. I grew up in the Yorkshire Dales. I'm used to hills. Um, 
all my childhood holidays were on the west coast nice coves and so forth and that sort of grey flat landscape of the east it's taken me a long time to come to terms with but I've always been fascinated by it um, I think where Kate's book um, and by the way it's a terrific memoir I think you, what you came to see me about 18 months ago, two years ago with an idea of doing a, a second book um, and probably what you showed me was the bit you read there and I thought this is going to be some memoir this um, it was kind of done probably then, but anyway. But I think you're, I mean, yours is about finding and searching, and I think what I, what I find inscribed on that coastal landscape of the east is loss. It's, uh, you know, I see erosion, and perhaps I see mortality when I look at it more than more than anything else. So that, uh, you know, it's very difficult to talk about what you set out to write because, in a book of poems because, you know, they come piecemeal and they come accidentally and gradually a book accumulates but you haven't perhaps got the guiding idea that you might have writing a memoir or a novel but gradually something congeals so you know there are poems in this that are political and satirical and topical and the poems about my father who I still seem to keep writing about and the love poems erotic poems but yes most of the poems in the first half are to do with landscape. Now it's called Shingle Street and Shingle Street, some of some people in the audience may know it, it's a, it's a, a tiny sort of village on quite a remote village on the east coast and what, what a great I mean I just love the name of course a street composed of shingle um, and about 20 years ago my wife and I had the idea of, of, write, of writing a thriller set there and wrote a few chapters, never came off, we, we were going to be sort of Nicky French, who didn't exist then, but we didn't ever finish this thing. Um, but I keep going back to that place, and it was actually just walking on the shingle, and there's that sort of scrunching, rhythmic movement that you make on shingle that, that kind of triggers something. So, you know, you think in terms of rhymes and crunching sounds, and so, yeah, there are a lot of rhymes. In the title poem, there's a ballad. I think of ballads as telling stories, and really there is only one story, on, as far as I'm concerned, about that East Coast. Well, there's a primary story, which is to do with erosion, and there, there's, as, as you hinted, Gareth, there are other, there are other stories and legends that, that accumulate. But the last book, the last full collection of poems, you're right, that was published 30 years ago, was called The Ballad of the Yorkshire Ripper. It was actually first published in the London Review of Books, that type of poem. And I, I suppose the ballad here was... A, in some way alluding back to that. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's not the sort of driving narrative that there was in telling the story of Peter Sutcliffe, but there's a story about the coast. I mean, maybe I should just read a little bit. I mean, just from the beginning to give you this sense of the, this driving rhythm and the rhymes. On Shingle Street, the summer's sweet, the stones are flat, the pebbles neat, and there's less rip when tides are neat. It's fine to swim or fine to try, but when the sea runs fast and high and skies turn black and cormorants weep, best watch your step on Shingle Street. Those rhymes of, of, of sweet and neat and steep and so on, and half rhymes, got the thing going. Now, I'll just read from the end of it, which is more to do with the theme of erosion. From Shingle Street to Orford Ness, the waves maraud, the winds oppress. The earth can't help but acquiesce. For this is east, and east means loss. A lessening shore, receding ground. Inches last year, this year feet. 
where land runs out and nothing sound, nothing lasts long on Shingle Street. On Shingle Street the grind goes on, a churning bowl of sand and stone, a watery mix that unbuilds homes, unearthing earth, unlaying land, tall waves that flash like silver spades and bulldozed buffs and quarried bays, not give and take, but take and keep, just shingle left on Shingle Street. For Shingle Street's a sinking street, the worn-out coasts in slow retreat, with locked-off bluffs and crumbling cliffs, an empty air where churches stood and houses perched and fields and woods, and no known means to stop the rot, a breaker's yard of rusted hulls where comas come and herring gulls, a holding bay for washed-up trash, a rest home for the obsolete, a hole, a heap, a wreck, a rack, a nomad's land, that's Shingle Street. On Shingle Street, the sea repeats its tired old tricks, its one-man show, the drum-rolled waves along the strand, the bass-line thud and cymbal clash, as stones are stoned and pebbles dashed. Again, 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 the waves collapse, the flints resound, the tide runs in and takes the ground, the tide runs out, the ground slips back. Variety is not the name, but that's the point. The sea is the same, unchanging grey, the one sure thing, a flooded plain in plain disguise, a level field that hides its rise through constant ebb and constant flow, unlike the earth, with shifts and shrinks, unlike ourselves, who have to go. So one of the... the I said there's one primary story that interests me, but there are other legends around Shingle Street, notably that in 1940 uh, there was, was there or was there not a German, an attempted German invasion, uh, which thwarted by extraordinary new um, uh, protective device that the Ministry of Defence had come up with of burning oil or petrol in the, at the edge of the, the sea, um, and loss of many lives and all hushed up. It would seem as if this, this story is, has no basis, but there are still people who will tell you, you know, that was they saw the flames that night from Shingle Street, and you know, it's got it's gone into folklore and legend. And I think that whole area, you know, you've got the the Orford Nest, where they have done, they used to have you know, weapons experiments. You've got Bordsy with the the, um, the radio masts and so on, and so sort of legend and superstition seems to accumulate around the area and, and that's part of the fascination for me in that coast but in particular in Jingle Street um, there is an air of mystery and there is something a bit haunted about the place I think Thank you I mean the, this idea of, of, of the legend of place of course is, is crucial to how you've thought about the writing of this book I think as well Catherine the taking on the shape-shifting nature of identity your identity, mm. Eva's identity you, you play with that as well um, but also the identity of place. I mentioned in uh, introducing Blake this idea of an adopted landscape. And I just wonder, in opening up the conversation now, to think about the, the shared themes of both books, how we could, we could think about this idea of adoption, of, of, of being given an identity that you then have to share, if you like, without your knowledge as, as a very very young person, and then, and then to take, take on another one with the idea, as you've discovered later, of course, of discovering who you were first. 
How does that relate to your search for a kind of place to belong as well? I mean, that's what the book, in a sense, is is driven by, but but along with many other things. But this idea of adoption of, of identity and landscape. Um, well, I think I'm somebody. You know, I, I read Bruce Chatwin's Songlines when I was in my twenties, and it, and it had a profound impression on me. Uh, and I'm somebody who's always returned to places. I grew up in the northwest. I grew up in. Cheshire, and I spent a huge amount of time in the Lake District uh, in my formative years. Uh, and then in the last 10 years, I, I discovered the Flynn Peninsula in North Wales um, and bizarrely bought a cottage there, um, having only ever been there for sort of 48 hours. Uh, I, you know, I went back to Barcelona and I just thought, you know, it, it happened that we had some money because my husband, had, uh, who's a writer, had, had just done a film deal. So we had this sort of lump of cash that wasn't... Yeah, we could have dissipated it really quite quickly, or you could do something with it. And so I literally started looking uh, on the internet at, um, at uh, croglofts. The word crogloft, labourers' cottages in, in North Wales, if they haven't been restored, have a crogloft. So I put the word crogloft, LL53, which is the postcode, uh, and for sale in Google, and came up, there were four cottages for sale, and I flew out the next weekend, and I just went and I made offers on all four of them. Uh, without knowing this landscape at all, I'd been once uh, when my father was dying. And I thought it was awful. I mean, it was, it's an incredibly grey coastline. It's a sandy, crumbling, um, which is one of the fastest uh, crumbling coastlines uh, in Britain. It's quite a greyish sand. It can be quite bleak. Uh, it's the Irish Sea. And I couldn't see anything beautiful about it at all. But I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I, I, I adopted that landscape. And, and it's something I have done throughout my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I adopted Barcelona for six years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something we do, and I think it's legitimate. I think we, we, have a, it, we don't have to have grown. Uh, I, mean, I mean, from my point of view, I don't know where I came from, really. So apart from the River Mersey, where I discovered extraordinarily this very house that I've been <coughs> born in, I've, my identity with place has always been a sort of spiritual identity, rather than necessarily a physical one, because mm. I don't necessarily have a right to any of these landscapes. Uh, and we're used to reading histories of peoples and their rights to their landscape. Mm. Um, but I, uh, you know, will fly the flag for the spiritual tourist mm. uh, to go on our pilgrimages and, and lay claim uh, to the land if it speaks to us. Mm. Um, Thank you. I mean, it's, it sounds like, from, from what Catherine's described, like, if you get tired of Suffolk and you need you know, grey, eroding coats, <laughs> no, no, you should I... grab... Grab a croglock. I I spent all my childhood, teenage holidays in the Flynn Peninsula. I worked behind a bar for three summers in Abbasot, just nearby, where I used the cottages (laughs) I assume. And um, I don't see it as grey and crumbling, you see. I see it as... (laughs) uh, I have sort of sunny Mediterranean, quite false memories of it. But I don't know how long you have to be in a place to feel that sense of ownership or the right to write about it. I mean, it's a, most of my early poems and indeed books had, had a Yorkshire, Yorkshire setting of some kind, because that's where I grew up. It took me a long time to write about London. It's taken me a while to write about Suffolk. The last novel mm. was, was set there, it's true, but it's take, it takes a while to sort of for the landscape to seep into you and for you to feel, yes, um, I have a right to explore this place. No? Yeah. Mm. Yes. No, I, I agree. I, I mean, what, what you realise very 
very quickly, I'm sure if you haven't already, is that these two writers and these two books are incredibly well paired. Um, so this event, of course, is, you know, is very well, uh, well made, which we claim zero credit. But there's an extraordinary echo, despite the difference in, in linguistic form between these two books. Uh, engagements to Wales, Scotland, uh, place, the idea of walking, of course, the, you know, the marine and the fluid nature of landscape as well. So it's a really wonderful dialogue um, on the page as well as in person. But I wonder if we could talk about what, what unites both books in, in many ways, which is this idea of life writing. So we have this... This term that has evolved, and Blake, you have a particular claim on that as well as in your other roles. Well, um, but yeah, one of my roles is now as, as a professor of creative and life writing, a role I've had for 10 years. And, and at the time I was appointed to this position, I didn't really know what life writing was. It was I think it's a, uh, you can trace it back to Virginia Woolf. There is an S, a Virginia Woolf essay in which life writing hyphenated appears, but I think it is obviously in the States that it... it gain some currency. I suppose what I, when I wrote about my father and mother, I, I thought of it as memoir, but you know, other people would call it narrative non-fiction, creative non-fiction, <coughs> life writing, which I think also embraces biography, possibly travel writing too. I suppose the strong idea behind it is a degree of autobiography uh, and non-fiction. Isn't, isn't that the sort of guiding principle? I mean, your poems are very much examples of life writing, you know, in terms of, you know, openness, engagement with you know, the private identities and the private made public as well, it seems, and, and feels strongly to me. Um, but, Catherine, life writing it has a sense, if you like, of, a, of course, of, of, you know, experience and, and, and prose or poetry meeting on the page. But there's also this larger sense, if you like, of what form the life should take, both the lived life and the written life. And I wonder how you think about the form of writing, having written... Well, I think, yeah, I think from my own point of view, I mean, I've lived with uh, a novelist, Rupert Thompson, for almost 30 years, uh, and I don't think that I have a sort of fictional bone in my body. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not a novelist. Mm. If I was, I'd have done something about it by now. But I think, for me, uh, and probably as an adop- adoptee, you grow up with a story, which is your life story. And then you sort of come to realise that that's not quite your life story, um, that that's not the whole story. But in fact, you are um, displaced. You're somebody who was brought into a family, uh, and you have a certain position which you, nobody can really shed any light on. Uh, and I think there is a, a sort of, you know, w- within writing by and about adoptees, there is a tendency to self mythologize. Uh, so, in a way, for me, looking back and trying to find who I actually was and where I came from is as strange and bizarre and exotic to me as fiction. Uh, and so that desire to try and construct a life had, a, had an absolute fascination for me. Uh, I mean, one of the books that has had the most profound effect on me, after my adoptive father died, I found that I couldn't read fiction. I don't know why, it was as though I'd lost several layers of skin and I found that it was too painful and it dealt with subjects that were, that were strong and were emotional and it dealt with things that, that we perhaps don't look at in our ordinary day-to-day life and I couldn't cope with it really. Uh, and the book that I came back to again and again and again was The Odyssey, a wonderful translation of The Odyssey by an American uh, poet called Richmond Lattimore. It was those fragments of life that you know that somehow this is all real and it's sort of been sifted over, over, over thousands of years and refined and refined and refined. And I think what fascinates me is the sort of kernels of essential truth uh, mm-hmm. that, that become quite poetic and they change into other things. Uh, but it's the, 
it's the seeds of, of human experience. Mm. Um, these sort of bits of... It's almost like panning for gold. You, know, you sort of pick up a bowl of dirt and then you find little glints in it. Uh, and I think that's what, what mm. has begun to fascinate me. Mm. Um, um, thank you. And I'm, I'm very interested in that idea that you take on, you know, all in, are inspired uh, and energised by this older form, because, Blake, you, you mentioned the ballad, ballad, of course, and the ballad of the Yorkshire Ripper in the earlier volume. And, and yet you also have a poem directly in this volume called Life Writing. Yeah, and, and a want... slightly jokey poem about the pitfalls of life writing. <laughs> Um, but I wonder but there would, are pitfalls. I mean, would you like to read it though? Because I think it's quite useful in a way, because it kind of sets a, you know, sets a, a kind of edge to the to the debate, if you like. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Not sure I've ever read it. Uh, I read it before. <laughs> not sure it applies to your life writing, case. Anyway, you're trying to bring to life what's in your head, a story that's discomforting but true. Your interest in inventing stuff's long dead. You know that all worth saying's all been said, but strive to tell it straight and make it new. You want to bring to life what's in your head. The names of all the ones you took to bed, the triumphs and disasters you lived through. <coughs> You'd like to set this down before you're dead. You comb your troubled past from A to Z. You drag forgotten memories into view. Your memoir brings to life what's in your head. But Tim, best mate at school, was really Ted, and Tanya's nut-brown eyes were turquoise blue. They phone you late at night and wish you dead. <laughs> the humour and affection go unread. Your candour earns you merciless reviews. Don't try to bring to life what's in your head. It's safer telling lies about the dead. <laughs> um, that's the Bill and L. Well, thank you, because, I mean, the, the reason for asking you to read that is because the stakes are high, aren't they? The stakes are high both personally and, mm -hmm. of course, potentially publicly as well. And, and you've uh, observed elsewhere, Catherine, that, that you felt an obligation to make much of this material public and that you pared away, if you like, the material that wasn't going to speak to that need, if you like, to... to to help, to aid, to 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 bring a, a, a kind of form of acknowledgement to other people's experience as well, perhaps people who've been in the same place. Yeah, well. I think once I realised that I'd written something that might speak to other people, and that it was it, that it was becoming a book, and, and that that it was clear that I was going to, um, you know, write a book with an agent and take it to a publisher mm. that that it would have uh, a public life. I went through it, and I, I actually deleted 35,000 words in about two days, and I took out everything uh, where I expressed an opinion on anything at all, because I thought, you know, I'm not a public figure, nobody knows who I am, Why is it, no one's going to be remotely interested in anything that I have to say about anything at all, and I just took out, and again, it's partly inspired by the Odyssey, it's the, you know, removing anything that you don't think <coughs> has longevity, mm. and so I left the things that I felt um, could touch the lives of other, you know, things like motherhood, subjects like you know, having cancer. I mean, one in eight people get cancer. Uh, most of us, if we're lucky, bury our parents. I mean, all of those things I left in because they're, they're, they're part of common experience. Uh, and the rest I took out. So it is this peculiar... You know, I think if you are writing a life story and you're, and you're not a, a famous person, then you have got to ask yourself why you're doing it and what it is that you're trying to convey. But I think apart from the truth of that, there's also the extraordinary difficulty of writing about people who are still alive mm. because we have these privacy laws. So, you know, I had to change. Um, I mean, I had to sort of bury the identities of my 
um, birth family, mm-hmm. uh, in order to be able to write the book. And, and that's something, and that's a peculiar complexity of, of writing mm-hmm. about those who are still living, because it's, you kind of have to almost fictionalise mm-hmm. uh, what you're doing in order to circumvent the privacy laws. And that's... Um, I think it's got more difficult, isn't it? I, mean, I just think back now to, you know, my memoir of my father published in 93, mm. lots of living people uh, are, in, are described in that book. Um, I could imagine the lawyers now at Grand Books who published that being much more exercised these days by than, than, than they were at the time. Mm. Uh, I think I was lucky to be able to say what I wanted in yeah, that book. Yeah, you used to you, be able to you, say whatever you liked you, about you, anybody you, providing it was true, and now you can't do that. <laughs> You've had lawyers... Oh yes, I mean this, case, this has been you know this has been thoroughly uh, turned mm. over. Yeah. I mean, Blake, you, you take that you know one step further if you like formally on the page because you've got poems about redaction, you have poems about the idea of hacking. So the yeah. personal life, you know, <coughs> is is meeting the public life in a very hard, you know, blunt way. Often, isn't it? Um, in the poems as well, which we do not take, you know, in the current culture to be to be, you know, to be a way of of talking about these issues. That's very striking in the book. I think. Well, I always think that poetry, and indeed memoir and fiction, can come at these, you know, issues of our time and find a different language for them, a different way of mm-hmm. presenting them and thinking about them. Um, that that was the basis of the Ballad of the Orchard River to sort of think about Sutcliffe and his misogyny rather than Sutcliffe as a psychopath, which was the media, the, the media story, or with the Bulger mm-hmm. killers, the boys, um, to think about them as again, as children, where they've been presented as demonic. You know, you try and find, you can use, I think, poetry and fiction and memoir to, to address these issues if, 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 if you're saying something different, something new, finding a new language for it. Thank you. I think, you know, what's coming through, I hope, is the sense of, you know, the need to write something in a certain form at a certain time. And I'm very struck by that in both books, is, is the requirement to write, the obligation to write, whether personal or public, um, that comes through uh, all of the writing that we're talking about. Um, it feels about the right time for me to shut up, absolutely, and to open up to to uh, you guys above above the uh, the watermark, shall we say? Um, I'm really aware that despite having spoken to our wonderful guests here, I haven't looked at you once. So I'm going to look at you now, full on, and um, invite questions from you. Not now, no pressure. Um, but please do think about questions if you'd like to. And anyone else, comments, responses uh, to anything Catherine Blake has said, of course, to the books, to the questions raised. Would anyone like to comment? Yes, please. Sounds like quite a cathartic process. Um, how did you change, Catherine, while you were writing the book and afterwards? A question about catharsis and whether Catherine changed in the course of or as a result of writing the book. That's a, that's a fascinating question. I'm, I'm not sure that I changed as a result of writing the book, uh, but I was changed during the time in which the book took place uh, in that I developed cancer. And so, and so, you know, I don't know if anybody's had breast cancer in this room, but, I mean, it's quite an extraordinarily invasive process uh, that took about 11 months, and uh, you're sort of pared down to a sort of fraction of <coughs> one's former self. I mean, you have no hair, you know, in, in, in all kinds of things. And then you sort of grow again. So it was this quite peculiar process that wasn't really associated with the writing. It just coincided with the writing. Um, but as a result of it, I found a voice. And so I think that the voice is the thing that grew out of this. Uh, you know, I mean, both Blake's poems and, and this book 
do look actually that there are, there are a couple of sort of quite chronically receding coastlines uh, in here, and, and this idea of the landscape that you know when you're young you grow up thinking the landscape is something that's has a sort of constancy, and now we see quite how quickly it's changing. We we look at climate change, we we look at the the polar ice caps melting, we look at our own coastlines, and we realise that you know we are outliving um, whole sort of sections of geological change, and so I think. Um, it, I, I found that I was contextualised during the writing of the book, both by the landscape itself and by the sort of paring down of my own body, uh, and then sort of re. I mean, I used to be blonde. That was, you know, my hair came back sort of red. Extraordinarily peculiar. You know, that you, you, we don't we change so many times during our lifetimes, and and it was that. It was suddenly. I think I found the process of uh, seeing myself in geological terms in a geological time frame or realising quite how shortened and truncated that geological mm. time frame was becoming, um, and our responsibility to the landscape about us. So I think I began to feel more bedded in, if you like, rather than um, mm. cathartic as such. It was, it was more of a becoming one with the land. Uh, sounds a bit grim, one imagines eternity and, uh, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, that idea, the geology, of course, because, Blake, you mentioned you know, the, the unique quality of Shingle Street, and, and it kind of gives a quality to the entire volume as well, because Shingle is a, you know, is a part of geology and process. It doesn't it hasn't arrived yet, if you like, in its final sand quality, should we say, I guess. Um, it's also very unstable underfoot, uh, as you've suggested in your uh, comments about the, about the volume. Uh, the sense of the past is kind of, you know, moving through it, but also futures that are uncertain. So that sense of, of the geology, shall we say, of place and what it means for you as a writer, as, an, you know, as a citizen, as someone who belongs to a place, whether inherited or adopted, does that sense of a larger time frame work for you and inform you in a kind of creative way? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, don't, I don't think it's overtly political to talk about, as it were, coastal erosion and rising sea levels, but... <laughs> It's unavoidably has a political dimension, doesn't it? It's all, it is all to do with global warming. And um, the, the efforts that we make to um, address it are very feeble. You know, they, we're accepting that lots of houses are going to fall in the sea over the next 30, 40 years, and, and people are not going to be compensated when their house disappears mm. over the edge of a cliff, it seems. Don't know what we can do, but we, I think your point that, you know, you grow up thinking landscape is permanent, and actually you suddenly realise... It's the landscapes that are shifting and impermanent, and you, and you just see your own mortality in, in the mm. landscape. Yeah. Um, I think that's part of what was driving this book, yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. I just wanted to ask both of you um, if you had any particular writers or poets in mind, either while you were writing or in the sort of phase before that you associate with your writing in a way. No, I mean, you can't write about the, the East Coast without being very aware of lots of distinguished predecessors who've written about it, and I suppose George Crabbe um, and his Oprah at the borough and so on. But, you know, my, I guess my, my poetic influences are relatively contemporary, you know, um, I say that, but realising that both Larkin and Heaney are dead now, but um, I think they've been the key poets for me of the last 20, 30 years. Well, I mean, I, I, as I said at the beginning, the, uh, the the influence for my journeys in the first instance was a book by Neil Gunn, the Scottish writer. Um, and so so two books by Neil Gunn sort of underpinned The Fish Ladder, The Well at the World's End and Highland River. 
But I sort of reached for poems throughout the writing of the book, and they keep appearing, fragments of poems keep appearing uh, throughout the book. I think it was Anselm Kiefer, if anybody saw that fantastic exhibition uh, that was on the Royal Academy, mm-hmm. um, he said something about um, poems being like boys, as in, be, as in boys in the sea, uh, and then you can sort of swim from one to the other and to stop yourself from drowning. And so certain voices did recur. One of them was Dylan Thomas, who, of course, wrote about this part of Wales, uh, or a part of Wales very close to it, um, in English. R.S. Thomas, uh, who was the vicar at Aberdaran, which is on the tip of the Thin Peninsula, who wrote, again, beautifully about this landscape. Um, Alice Oswald, whose poems about water I mm-hmm. find absolutely extraordinary. Uh, her, is it called A Night wa- a Sleepwalk on the Seven? Sleepwalk on the Seven. And um, Dart, uh, both particularly, had an influence. And actually, I quote... Uh, quite a bit from uh, Sleepwalk on the Seven in in this book. It took four months to get the permission. Um, uh, My heart was in my mouth because uh, she was so key to it. But also I pulled on the the Celtic mythologies, so the Mabinogion, which is the book of uh, Welsh mythological stories, uh, and the Irish metrical Dinchenches, which again, uh, they they tell the stories of how how certain features of the landscape came into being, like the River Boyne. Um, And so those mythologies, I, I... reached for, because I wanted to, to keep the, the book kind of grounded in this landscape. Um, I do actually quote John Cheever at one point, so I do slightly cross the, the, uh, the pond, uh, but for the most part, uh, they were local voices. I, mean, I, think I should mention um, yeah. John Dunn, who, who said, if a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less. Uh, which, um, yes, he was did. Perfect, yeah, absolutely. From my book, another influence. So I think, I mean, you know, what's coming through very strongly here is the is the idea of priority, whether it's a public priority, climate change, and the issues concerned with erosion, or the personal need and, and obligation that comes, um, first of all, you know, very internally to to write and to commit to the page. And I just wonder if you think, for both of you, having written e- each of your books, whether. The idea of what it's what it's we hinted at it earlier, but outside of that specifically legal framework, what it's permissible to say and what it's necessary to say, and where those two meet. I wonder if your sense of, of, of that has changed, and and also for you, Blake. I mean, whether the question is not so much a personal one in, in the case of this volume, perhaps, but more with your previous books, you know, particularly the Bulger book. Which well, I do have to say, I think you've written at a very uh, privileged time in that you've managed to say some quite extraordinary things before the prism of spotlight was focused quite so intently on the life writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, even the Bulger book now, I think. Maybe. Could you? Well, there is this case at the moment, isn't there, that's about to come to court about the, the memoir that a, an unnamed person, is he an actor, has written um, uh, about his being abused as a child and his ex-wife has taken out an injunction against it because she doesn't want their son, age 12, to read it. And extraordinary, but uh, so far that injunction holds is, is going to court. But I mean, I think that is indicative of the kind of potential restrictions that are around this genre at the moment. I mean, I'm a huge advocate of freedom of speech and yeah. freedom of right of freedom of expression. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's very, very important that we don't lose sight mm. of, of our right to speak. And if you don't want to listen, you don't have to listen. Uh, and I don't think that being offended is a reason not for something not to be published. Uh, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. 
Um, and I think we, we, th there is a sort of slightly dangerous feeling that you shouldn't write anything that might give offence mm. to anybody. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, Charlie Hebdo being a sort of you know, rather cataclysmic example of where that might go. And I think we, we must retain the right to cause... I mean, I don't want to cause offence, but if I do, I don't apologise for it. You, you don't have to read it. Uh, and you don't have to be nice about it. You can say dreadful things about it, and that's fine too. Uh, but I do think there's a sort of rather worrying concern about... Yeah, I think about, there's a sufficient um, personal engagement with, with an issue, either your own life history or, or, or a political issue about which you feel strongly, and you know there's a burning need to say it. Be able to say it. I, well, mean, I think your story—you have to be free to tell your story as yeah. you perceive it, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that might in, mean including things that aren't necessarily. Uh, exactly. I mean, I, I was told it was not a good idea for me to go to Liverpool in the wake of the publishing that Bolger book, um, just because feelings were running so high and people didn't want to hear that there was anything that could be said on behalf of Robert Thompson and John. <coughs> but it was very important to, to, mm. to say that, and, and certain things are in this. In this book, you mentioned the redacted poem. Mm -hmm. um, a, a, a soldier who died in Afghanistan. I, I, he was a friend, of, not a close friend, but he knew my son, my oldest son. Uh, I know his mother. She wrote this book, a memoir about uh, his life and death. But part of the story was the difficulty in getting information about how he died, mm -hmm. because when the documents came from the MOD, they were redacted. You know, again, I, I think. I, I wouldn't feel entitled to write to write war poetry as such because I've not served at the front, not been in a war. But I think you can write about that issue. Um, I, again, just a strong sense of personal engagement with the subject. She should have had the information. It shouldn't have been denied to her. Mm. I mean, the idea of redaction, of course, is a very strong one, isn't it? And, and as you said, Catherine, the, the idea of a sort of personal redaction before publication where we self-censor mm. becomes mm. the most disturbing aspect, perhaps, of that. We hear all these horror stories about getting our first books published. Can you tell us what it was like for you from um, finishing The Last Word to publication? Well, I feel slightly fraudulent. I didn't have a horror story. Um, I, I, I gave the book to my agent, Coralette King, uh, who had been such um, a firm and, and eloquent critic for the previous four years, so that I, whenever I gave him a draft of this book, he would... Give me pages and pages of notes, and finally, last January, uh, he'd sort of phoned and said, "You know, let me see whatever you've got. I don't care what state it's in." Um, I thought, "Oh gosh, I'm only two thirds of the way through this draft," and then there was absolute silence, and I thought, "Oh gosh, you know, he's going to turn it down." And I eventually phoned him. He said, "Oh, I think it's fine. You know, we're ready to go." And so he sent the book out uh, to a list of publishers. Uh, he didn't tell me who they were. And then it, 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 it sold, and you know, Bloomsbury um, bid for the book against a number of other publishers, and uh, and I was in this extraordinarily privileged position of, of having to choose. And I, I do apologise, Alexandra. I know you're here in the room tonight, and I know that I spent ages and ages making my mind up. Uh, and it's because Karadik was so strict that he insisted that I I went and met Lenny Goodings, and, and she was on holidays. <laughs> so so I do apologise for the amount of time it took. I wasn't being coy, um, but. Uh, no, it was an incredibly joyful experience, and uh, and uh, there the, the was no horror story, and so I'm, I I, I can't share anything uh, that uh, that uh, about that other than to say that it was an extraordinarily joyful experience, and Bloomsbury have been fantastically supportive of the book, uh, and they they when I had my first meeting with Alexandra, who's in the room tonight, and Alexa von Hirschberg, my editor. 
they got it at once that it was not necessarily just a literary memoir, but that, that I mean, I always felt that it, that it could speak to other people. I felt that it could speak to a wider group of people than a, a literary memoir might ordinarily be pitched at. And Bloomsbury just got so behind that, that idea of, of, of just a book that speaks. Regard, you know, that we weren't too worried about genre. Is it a memoir? Is it a travelogue? Is it a work? And yes, it's a work of life writing. Um, is it nature writing? That uh, they just embraced the whole thing without trying to sort of put it anywhere in particular. And I've done a brilliant job. It looks gorgeous. So, so no, I haven't got a horror story. I feel, I feel so, uh, sorry for the no horror story. <laughs> Thank you to Bloomsbury. Big thanks to Bloomsbury. Excellent. Um, I was particularly struck by the, the metaphor of walking from the sea to the source of the river and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about what that meant to you and also perhaps what it meant to your daughter doing it and how it's evolved in her life as a you know the, what that activity means to her now and well yeah I mean I think um, I've always spent a huge amount of my life on a beach and I very often uh, you know some of the most important people I've met in my life I've met either on a beach or as a result of somebody else that I'd met on a beach. So I'm a great believer in the sort of spiritual uh, dimension of, and potential, of, in fact, including Ender Hughes, who's right here in this room tonight, the young film uh, maker who I think it was Galway Beach, the Galway Film Festival. You know, but beaches do crop up again and again. And so suddenly to turn inland and to turn back on myself, uh, you know, there's that story of Orpheus, you know, going down into hell and don't look back. But actually, I suddenly thought, actually, I have to look back because there's a whole section about myself that's missing. And I'd always wanted to walk to the source of a river. Since I was about 11 years old and I sort of zoned out in a geography lesson and missed um, what the water table was and what the water cycle was, and, and I actually never knew. Uh, and I'd always wanted to actually just see that sort of hole in the ground where it came out. And, and, it made, and in order to get to the source, you've got to walk upstream anyway, so it made sense to start on the beach. Uh, but as for my daughter, I think, you know, poor Evie was only nine when, when this uh, eccentricity began. Uh, and so I think it's actually just a part of her now. Uh, I don't think she questions it at all. I think she's just a child who grew up walking up rivers. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe one day she'll look at the mountains or go, or the forests or, or somewhere else. But I think it, uh, the thing about children is they're extraordinarily plastic and resilient and they, they, will just accept whatever you put in front of them as though it were natural. And, uh, and you saw a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, beneath the pavement of the beach, of course, as the Spirit of 58 will remind us. Um, I'm going to ask Blake um, if, if he's happy to do so, just to read our concluding poem. But before that, I'd like to thank, of course, everyone here at the London Review Bookshop. There aren't many bookshops where you can catch out the corner of your eye, the shelf mark, Philosophy Downstairs, with all the implications that, that suggests about the nature of philosophy. Um, but possibly, you know, downstairs, it's waiting to well up again. Um, it's been a real pleasure to be here with Blake and Catherine. Um, thank you very much for coming. And I'd just like, if I may, to ask Blake to, to read the closing poem from the book, but also the closing poem this evening, Latecomer. It seems to make sense, creatively complicating even further some of the things that we've said, if you don't mind. All I'm saying has been said before, but not by me. To ourselves, we're always new, like the sun coming up, unaware it did so yesterday. The past might put us straight, but the past lives over the mountain, in the quiet meadow, with horses grazing. Horses we would recognise if the stains on their flanks weren't hidden by trees. Does the white mean they're getting old, or is it the froth from sweating saddles? 
We keep jostling for a better view, but can't get any closer than the quarry edge. And really, that's a kindness, like fog filling the valley, or the man with the megaphone suddenly noticing the crowds have left, and there's no one to tell that the track and field events are over for the day, and that all previous records will stand. Thank you. Blake Morris and Catherine Albert. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.